trying to get back to the basics of great products. Power comes from sharing information. I try to convince people to slow down. Free. Yeah. Open. This is the Soak Dice Podcast. Hi, listeners and viewers. Before we go to the episode, we have a quick word from our sponsor, VTT. What's the next big thing? VTT Technical Research Center of Finland wants to tackle global challenges and turn them into opportunities for sustainable growth. Do you share the same passion? VTT develops cutting-edge innovations and offers a true deep tech wonderland for investors. VTT is also able to co-invest its valuable IPR to growth companies. Learn more about the innovations and people behind them at vttresearch.com. For example, there's Vesa Pentikainen, senior scientist who's commercializing the Cooley Blade cooling technology for power electronics. The development process has been a fascinating journey of intensive teamwork, curious experimenting, and creative problem solving. This is quoting Vesa. We have seen the evolution from the original idea and research hypothesis to real functional solutions solving customer needs. It's a great feeling when you are finally presenting your technology to industry experts, you feel their excitement, and finally they say they need your solution. Great job, Vesa. We're super excited to have VTT on board as a sponsor on this podcast. We really recommend you go check them out at vttresearch.com. Thank you. Let's go to the episode. Hi. Welcome to the first, not ever, but first ever live in the studio episode of Soaked by Slush podcast here from Helsinki, Finland. My name is Isak Rautio. How are you doing, William von der Palen? I'm great, thanks. It's it's good to be here. We're at the Slush office uh, at an undisclosed uh, location you can find on Google. And uh, yeah, really, really fun to to be doing this now. Yes, uh, finally, so. uh, finally like this at a studio, we can sit down and actually take it easy. Good sofa. Yeah. Perfect. Let's go to the episode. Juri Engström, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We've talked to you before, actually, for our own podcast, Futocast, and not uh, enough about that because uh, this is the Slush Podcast. Uh, but you are uh, the founder of uh, Yes VC, together with my partner Katarina Fake. Together with your partner, yes. Uh, do you want to give a short intro of what you've been doing these recent years? Sure. Let me tell you um, a story, actually. So in 2014. Uh, Katarina and I, we made an angel investment. And this, as many founders, after you've uh, perhaps started a company, you maybe, like in our case, um, Katarina's company Flickr was acquired by Yahoo. My company, Jaiku, was acquired by Google. Um, your newly found cash, uh, you just you're just itching to make your first angel investment, right? Isn't that what all founders want to do is help their their friends, other founders. And so um, so anyway, we, um, we had been angel investing for many years, um, uh, by 2014, but in this particular case, I think the investment totaled maybe 200 K, uh, in us dollars. And then fast forward a few years, maybe it was around 2016, 17, uh, founder gives me a phone call and says, are you sitting down? I've got good news. Um, you know, there's an opportunity for you to exit. And of course, the first thing that goes through an investor's mind is, oh, what's the multiplier? How much am I getting back of my original investment, my 200K? And he's, well, it's a it's a 5X multiplier. So, okay, great. That means it's a million dollars in return, uh, 5X multiplier. As an angel, um, 
that's great, right? So I was happy about that deal. Um, now it's 2020, uh, and together with Katarina, we now have a fund. So we're no longer just angels. We also now man actively manage our own early stage venture capital fund, yes, VC. That same scenario, um, I, I'm startled to realize from the perspective of a venture capital investor uh, would play out completely differently. So let's imagine I've done my investment. Uh, a few years later, this founder calls me back and says, great news, we're exiting, you're going to make 5x. Now, I won't be happy as, an, as a VC. As an angel, I would be, but as a venture capitalist, I'm not. Um, why is that? And I think this is super important for founders because you know you want to be aligned with your investors and you want to understand the business model of your VC when you take money from someone. And you want to basically be going in the same, you want to end up in the same place, right? And so, and I think that a lot of founders inadvertently end up screwing their VCs and sometimes vice versa too, because they don't actually, they just haven't taken the time. And sometimes these are opaque things that aren't really explained and VCs don't often do a good job of explaining their own business model to their portfolio founders. And so in short, um, you know, if you take a million dollars from a $50 million early stage fund, I think you should be prepared to return that million dollars 150x, basically return $150 million uh, or let's say if the VC invests a million at uh, 10 million post money valuation and owns 10% of the company, then you're going to look at exiting at 1.5 billion minimum, probably actually twice that. So around 3 billion because you have to take into account the dilution. And so just consider that when you raise VC early stage, because back, um, you know, behind the scenes, there's this sort of brutal math going on, um, that's going to influence everything, uh, you know, obviously prior to when you're pitching, how the VC is valuating your deal, but also once you've taken the money. Sometimes VCs also kind of kid themselves. You know, they fall in love with an idea and a founder and they really want it to succeed and they sort of, you know, don't pay so much attention to the laws that are actually governing their ability to survive as VCs. They are going to have to go and raise a second fund probably within three to four years of making this investment. And so they get scrutinized by their investors. Um, so it isn't just that VCs are evil and want these kind of insane returns because they want to, you know, extract the most value out of their founders. It's because they're actually only shepherds and, you know, hired managers for other people's money. And it's their investors that, um, frankly, are expecting it. And so this is something that I think would be extremely useful for founders to scrutinize and understand really well. And it's not, it's just mechanics. It's not like a rocket science sort of thing. Yeah. And it's not, as you said, it's not of, often something that, um, you know, the VC, it's not communicated very clearly at, at the beginning. And as you see, most, most companies don't return the money <laughs> 150 times, but you, you recently, um, made a little, uh, presentation or pitch deck on, on what, uh, what VC is and, and, and how uh, early stage companies uh, should be looking at this. And, and also you mentioned here a thing called uh, uh, the power law. And by the way, we will be posting the, the link to the presentation in the description so you can uh, look, at, look at the same slide there. But um, you mentioned something called the power law that uh, 
97% of all the returns come from less than 10 companies. Yeah, anybody who's you know played around with startups and been in this world uh, more than five minutes probably ends up hearing about the power law, right? Because it's this, like I said, law-like thing that seems to govern the returns and their distribution, which basically means that, uh, I don't know, out of 10,000 startups, only less than 10 end up generating a majority of the returns. And so there's this incredible discrepancy between how many companies are founded and how many actually end up returning the money to their investors in, the, in a way that's meaningful. And those those few that do then sort of fund everyone else because that enables the VCs to make more bets. And so as a rule of thumb, uh, let's say you're a founder and you're going to pitch an early stage VC. Um, here's here's how that VC's business model works, right? So let's say I, in a 2018, um, I start Yes VC, this early stage fund together with my partner. And so uh, for the sake of argument, let's say that our fund's going to be 50 million. So we're going to raise $50 million, right? So maybe we invest in it ourselves, but um, almost certainly we're also going to invite other LPs, right? People who invest in our fund. So I take out my phone, I write some I messages or whatever, and I say, hey, um, starting a new fund, you want to invest. So what's my LP, my limited partner, the investor that invests in my fund going to think? Well, he's going to say, or she's going to say, well, I would like to see returns, right? I'm not going to just donate money to your charity. I can do that through my charity, so I'm going to want expect something to come back. What do they want back? Well, standard in VC world tends to be a 3x return as the bare minimum baseline. And you're talking about a fund that has a limited lifespan, which is typically 10 years. So you're actually thinking three or 3x sounds like a lot, but if you distribute it over 10 years and that's an illiquid investment, the VC or the LP is probably not going to necessarily be able to just sell their stake in the fund like in the stock market anytime they want. So um, you do the IRR, the internal rate of return on that, and it's it's you know it's not anything crazy. You can probably actually make more money on the stock market if you invest well, some public 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 markets. So this just as a background. So let's say minimum three x return, but you know good early stage funds, especially smaller funds, will have dramatically higher five x ten x funds. You know there's you know um, I think we're LPs in a fund that's over 100x, so um, it's possible to make that. But if the VC wants to keep their job, that's what they're signing up for. So now $50 million, so they're going to return 150, right? 3x that 50. Now, the other thing to understand is that, well, not all of that 50 million is actually going to get invested into startups. First of all, over 10 years, there's going to be fees. There's a management fee, typically 2%. So that's going to be roughly one-fifth of that fund. So $50 million, you take 10 million immediately and you just allocate that to fees and legal fees, all that. Now you've got 40 million left. Well, VCs, as anyone who understands VC knows, are actually making two kinds of investments always. One is the initial checks. That's first time you guys pitch and I decide to invest in your company. It's a new investment I'm making. I'm adding your company to my portfolio. But then over time, you're going to raise more rounds as you grow, hopefully, and I need to defend my ownership. And so I will make follow-on checks later. So I'm going to take that $40 million and I'm going to split it into two, right? Let's say in an early stage fund, that might be 50-50. Other funds, bigger funds typically actually allocate much less to initial checks and a bigger chunk to their follow-on checks. But I'm going to say for the just for simplicity's sake, 50-50. So we're going to uh, 40 million, 20 million into initial checks, 20 million we're just going to stow away, ready to deploy later as dry powder as our companies grow. Now, 
20 million dollars are left of my 50 now that I'm actually going to start cutting checks into new companies. And so obviously I'm not going to invest it all in one company because it's a portfolio I need to distribute in order to diversify and manage the risk, right? So how many companies do I actually invest in? Probably at minimum 20. For an early stage VC, that's bare minimum. There's you know VCs that'll do 50 companies per, per fund, uh, 30 to 40 is pretty normal, but let's say $20 million, 20, 20 companies. So on average, $1 million per each company, right? So now I start writing my checks. I create my portfolio. And by the way, in VCs have this investing period, right? So in our fund, it's three years. So from the initial closing of my fund, I've got three years and I need to deploy all of that, all that 20 million into companies. So I've got basically three years to build my 20 company portfolio. And then after that, there's still seven years of the fund left, and that's when I make my follow-on investments, but I'm not adding new companies into the portfolio. So the presumption for the VC is after that investing period is over, they're going to go and raise a new fund. So VC stack funds. So you're going to have a VC like, I don't know, older VC like Raylock or something, and they might have 16, 17, they might be on their fund 18 uh, because they've done so many funds, right? And so, and some of these funds remain active, um, and that's frankly how VCs make salaries. Um, is every time you raise a new fund, there's a new management fee, um, and so you end up stacking your management fees. Of course, they go down. So after the active investing period is over, the fee goes typically goes down. But um, VCs with a lot of funds end up actually pulling in quite a bit of fee just from having so many funds. Um, which is another interesting thing if you think about from a VC's perspective, um, you know, you're want, you have this driver to basically raise more funds, raise more money because you get more fees so you can pay yourself a bigger salary or hire more people or whatever, right? But then on the other hand, the more money you raise, um, the higher your returns are going to have to be in order for you to maintain that same multiplier. Remember that 3x minimum, right? And so if you have a $10 million fund, 3x is only 30 million, but if you have 10, 20 million dollar funds or whatever, um, uh, you know, you're going to have to, or 10, 10 million dollar funds, now you have 100 million dollars, and obviously that becomes harder to return at the same kind of multiplier. So um, you're constantly looking at this from a VC's perspective, this situation where there's a pressure to have more assets under management, AUM. And then at the same time, also in the long term, though, if you think most of the VCs own reward should come from the carry, right? So that's what they make once they have a great exit. And again, um, if you think about European VCs versus US VCs, US VCs tend to be hyper carry oriented, right? So a VC like us will pay ourselves minimum salaries and try to maximize carry, uh, drive all our incentives to just carry, 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 right? Um, and then on the other hand, if you have like many European VCs have difficulty actually ever reaching carry. There's funds that have never had any carry and still keep going because there's, you know, uh, the European investment fund and uh, governments that, you know, are happy to be LPs and funds that don't perform quite as well. And so that's another thing to just watch as a founder is like, what's, has your VC actually ever had <laughs> carry? Um, and, you know, these things actually matter. So, and, and also and, as an investor, obviously, if you invest in, in a venture capital fund, you probably want to align with the 
you know, uh, it's it's probably better that you have the same incentives in terms of both getting the money from the carry and not not uh, just from the management fee. Sure, yeah, and it's it's you know, of course, you know, you want to be fair, just as VCs should be fair to founders, and founders should be fair to employees. Where, you know, you want a fund manager to not be over constrained. Like they should be able to travel. You know network, throw dinners for their founders, et cetera, which are all part of management fee, presumably. So you're not going to want to like squeeze that too tight. But at the same time, you want them to be as incentivized as possible, aligned with your incentive to actually generate a lot of carry. Okay. Well, so here we are. We're back at the situation where I'm cutting my $21 million checks, right? And so, and now this is the critical part for a founder is if you're pitching, um, figure out what the fund size is for the VC that you're pitching, because that's, you know, it's like, Mike Maples, I think famously, of, you know, kind of like a foundational early stage VC in Silicon Valley, uh, f- uh, founder of, of Floodgate, um, together with Anne Miracle, uh, his partner. I think Mike once said, your fund size is your strategy when you're thinking about like a, from a VC perspective, because a small fund versus a large fund uh, means that you're going to look at the world a completely different way. So look at the fund size of the VC and then figure out how much of a return expectation will that VC actually have if you assume that every time that they go in front of their LPs, which happens typically once a year at the annual general meeting of the venture capital firm, they have to basically defend to their LPs and prospective new LPs who they probably want to invest in the next fund that they are going to start soon. Um, They're going to say, well, Every time we've made an investment, um, we have carefully considered and decided that this, indeed, this company has the potential to return our entire fund. Because, you know, the assumption with the power law, right, is that 9 out of 10 and actually more than that, it's like more like 19 out of 20. And this is even if the VC is very, very good, they might have just one company in there that returns the entire fund and not just 1x, 3x minimum. Right. And so every time they make an investment out of a $50 million fund, what they're thinking is, is this going to be the one that returns the entire fund 3x? So basically a $1 million check turns into $150 million in return each and every time they invest in a new company. So, you know, I think that's oftentimes forgotten in these conversations when a founder is pitching because it means that the founder then needs to think, well, okay, I'm taking this this $1 million from this VC. Let's say I want to post money valuation of $10 million. So the VC is buying 10% of my company. Now the VC is pressured, you know, under tremendous pressure to just keep their job, right? And in order to keep their job, they're going to need to truly credibly believe that you will be the one that returns that $1 million, 150x within the lifespan of their fund and you know i don't know if they're in year one year two year three maybe year four of their investing and that gives you the idea of what their fund lifespan how much of it is left it's basically they need to see that return before their fund is over Um, and so these are the mechanics that are at play whether you pay attention to it or not and um, you should be paying attention does this mean that every type of company should they even apply for VC funding in this case? Like, is is every company sort of or every early stage company sort of uh, made out for this challenge in a sense, or is there absolutely more... not? And and they should be right. And this is part of why I'm on the podcast here. It's because yeah. it's 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 again it's relatively simple math and. Um, I think that a lot of founders, frankly, a lot of new VCs too, sort of just trying to say, well, you know, we know that 19 out of 20 can be, you know, we can blow it off. So it's okay if there's a few in there that we're not so certain about because sometimes companies surprise us. You know, it's like who knew that Uber would, you know, so quickly uh, 
take over the entire taxi market, not one times, but more like 20 times, right? You know, uh, supposedly it was never supposed to grow that big because you look at the existing size of the taxi market and I don't know, San Francisco or New York, and you're like, wow, that's never going to be enough to generate that kind of return. So there's these, you know, exceptional surprises that everyone loves to talk about. But then you look at why is it that there's this category of elite founders who are just able to repeatedly create these kinds of billion dollar companies. And arguably, um, those founders have sort of internalized the rules of the game and understand that in order to play and win, you kind of need to <laughs> not, you know, need, you need to observe what the rules are, right? And so it, it's at least, if it's not a guarantee that you're going to become a billionaire by the age 30, but it certainly improves your odds. Um, and so, yes, the answer is not every company is cut out for VC, yet many founders choose to ignore that. And even many VCs choose to ignore that and still invest. Um, however, if you take it seriously, I think that it dramatically improves your chances of winning. And so if you think now you're saying like, crap, well, that means that only a very narrow SaaS type of software business is ever going to be VC fundable. Um, and that may be the case, but there are always, you know, if you think about it, you know, a company like Peloton, a hardware company, makes a exercise bike. Um, arguably, that's not software, right? But then there's a SaaS model built into that, where after you buy the bike, you you end up paying, you know, forty bucks a month in order to get the streaming service to be able to actually do live classes on your exercise bike. So there's ways that you can, you know, kind of create these business models, um, even if you're building a hardware business or you're building some other kind of, let's say, like a food business, for instance. Um, but then maybe one point also to consider is you're not a bad company uh, just because you don't qualify maybe for VC money. There are a lot of really good businesses that should be built even though they maybe can't become, you know, three billion valuation companies. Sure. And, and yeah. there are also other ways of getting funded. But I think it's maybe many people aren't aware of all the options that are out there and, and maybe VC money is sometimes also a bit glorified in a sense. Yeah, I think it's become the only option. It's the only path um, for startups right now. And since there's so, this is an incredible proliferation and order of magnitude more founders and entrepreneurs building startups um, and then they're all kind of getting funneled into this one narrow VC funnel. Um, just because of podcasts like this and, you know, uh, events like Slush that have sort of popularized this idea that, frankly, used to, you know, technology startups used to be an extremely rare uh, kind of company, even just 15, 20 years ago when I started, you know, um, it was super rare. I didn't know anyone else who was starting a, a tech company, right, because this just wasn't normal. Um, and so thanks to you guys, you've made it super popular. But I think, um, you know, now we're at risk of it, you know, sort of ended up in the situation where the interests aren't aligned because so many founders don't realize what they're signing up for. And so, you know, think about like, how do you then build this kind of business? Like, first of all, like kind of, <laughs> you need to sort of uh, look yourself in the mirror and say, well, am I ready for this, right? Do I understand that I'm actually expected to build a company that's worth $3 billion, right? Um, it's, you know, it's pretty daunting. Um, and so that's really what you're signing up for. Um, and then second, if you're like, sure, of course, it's no problem. Um, that's great. Then, you know, what are the mechanics of how do you actually, what's a, what does a perfect early stage company look like to an early stage VC? And that's also pretty straightforward mechanics. You're going to have 
extremely early traction in terms of customers that are actually paying for your product. You know, from a VC's perspective, that's probably number one importance. Like, even if it's only 10 people or 10 business customers that are paying for it or whatever, um, there's still someone out there who clearly wants to pay from day one. Um, then second thing is is growth. And that's typical rule of thumb, 20% month over month growth. 20% month over month, not year over year, uh, revenue-wise. And then of that revenue, if you think about from an early stage VC's perspective, you want to invest in companies that actually don't need to raise a lot of downstream capital later. Because every time, and this is again something like, you know, founders, like if you read the press, there's a lot of celebration about how these companies raise very large rounds, like, you know, whatever. Uh, we're here in Finland, like, well, just raised another $100 million, uh, whatever. Um, you know, Swappy just raised $40 million. And it's funny because these get celebrated because, you know, obviously everyone's trying to get to a $1 billion valuation of a unicorn status. But then from an early stage VC, every time that happens, I, I cringe, you know, because it means it's kind of another failure, right? It means that a company had to go to a VC and dilute, sell shares in order to try to grow faster because they weren't able to fund it with customer revenue. And so every time a company has to tap a VC, it's a little bit of a bummer, especially to an early stage VC if you happen to be invested in the company earlier because that means that there's more money now coming to sit on top of you in the liquidation stack, the preference stack, right? So it means that Whoever comes in after you is going to get their money out first and has probably better other terms, um, you know, than you do. And at the very bottom of that stack are the founders and the employees of that company who hold common stock. And so this is, again, often forgotten is that you celebrate these easily. And it's, it's I mean, there's, of course, there's reasons to celebrate when, you know, companies are able to bring in new investors and, and grow, presumably. But at the same time. Um, it's funny because, you know, you think about a company like MailChimp that's worth, what, $4.3 billion that never took any venture capital. And those two founders still own the company basically with their employees 100%. So, yeah, shouldn't that be the goal? I mean, I, I understand that, you know, of course, you can't do that in every case, but uh, I mean... You know, you build a company like that and, and the VCs are probably going to flock around you and, and try to get a piece of that company. Right. So if you are a founder, then the second thing you want to do after you've looked yourself in the mirror and, you know, decided, you know, giving yourself a little wink, I said, yep, $3 billion, no problem, is do you go to a VC? No. You look at how you're going to fund that growth with revenue from your customers, right? And so obviously, number one thing there is, well you do need some customers that are actually willing to pay you. And this, by the way, when I started out in the early 2000s, the revolutionary idea was that you could grow a company like Facebook or Twitter without having any revenue. Because the idea was that you would just amass millions of users and fund it with VC from the Valley that would then, and the revenues would later come. And this is exactly what happened. It worked perfectly for these companies. But as an offset of that, I think what people don't really talk about is, and if you think about a Mark Zuckerberg, their VCs also trained them as young founders and belonged to that cohort. So I recognize this because I was one of those founders and I was racing VC from those same VCs into that kind of thinking where, oh, um, well, the revenue part we'll figure out later. We're going to focus on growth and 
getting more users. And what happens is then you end up where, where we are now, where what the because they didn't really have to consider that, all they could do then was turn their users into the product, which is essentially data harvesting from their users, which they're then selling to advertisers, right? So it created, I think, this nefarious business model that's now in many ways more harmful than it is beneficial. And so really like being perfectly aligned with your users means that you're, it is the user who is paying for the value that they get instead of you having to pretend that you're offering them something for free and then actually basically stealing their data and then selling it to this other person who wants to influence them kind of, you know, by advertising, for instance, without really maybe explaining to them the mechanics of what's happening. So, uh, you know, for that reason, again, it's really good to be aligned and get that early revenue from the people that are paying you who actually realize that they're getting value for what they're paying for. And so secondly, then I just want to mention this, like, okay, you got that 20% growth now you've got your early traction how like what else do you need the other rules of thumbs are thumb that i would look at are 15 percent of your budget uh should probably go into everything else so that's like servers uh hosting whatever office rents etc 20 percent would go into new customer acquisition so maybe you are running instagram ads or you are uh, you know, doing some kind of business to business advertising, um, whatever it is that you're using for new customer acquisition, and then, then pretty much the rest, you're just going to pay your your employees, um, and so that should be, like from again on an early stage VC's perspective, a perfect kind of early stage company to invest in. That's growing like that, and that's you know using, um, you know, it's got it's it's paying its its employees, and then it's spending about twenty percent on customer acquisition and then the remaining 15% is, you know, whatever that cost for everything else. So we've gone through a lot of the things that founders should remember when uh, communicating with, uh, with VCs, but is there anything in that sort of language of communication between those two parties that is forgotten or, or some relevant part that should be kept in mind that isn't now? Well, here's, here, here's one thing. So oftentimes, and this is a little bit different from, uh, so it said like, you know, in Silicon Valley, uh, failure is cherished and it's okay to fail versus in Europe where, you know, failure is abhorred. Um, and I recently read this, this book that mentioned, well, they were looking at uh, heart surgeons. And so, and the question was, well, is this actually true, right? Does someone who fails are they more likely to succeed with their next surgery of the same type, right? So you could then, by extension, translate obviously into startups. If a startup founder has failed with their previous startups, does that mean that they're likely to have learned and be better next time? The answer is nope. So in fact, in the world of heart surgeons, according to this book, the people, the surgeons that had failed that kind of surgery were actually more likely to fail again. Mm. With one caveat the as you know like you're in an operating theater you're not doing surgery by yourself right just like in a startup usually you've got a team now the other surgeons around the main surgeon who watched that person fail were much more likely to succeed later down the line themselves but the key point there was that they weren't the person that failed they were the person that watched someone else fail and similarly, this is why I'm so excited about all kinds of internship programs, just going into working at a high-risk company when you're younger, 
because it gives you the opportunity to perhaps watch someone else fail without feeling like you're taking on that kind of identity of someone who did that and ex externalizing the, you know, oh, I didn't have enough time. Oh, uh, I, was, I didn't raise enough money, whatever it was. You know, you kind of always explain away your failures by having some other external factor. It's just normal human, what people do. And whereas, you know, if you watch someone else, you can say, oh, I think they made a mistake there. Uh, I better watch out and never make that mistake myself again. So um, that's my point on failure is, and I think it pretty much applies. You know, there's the people that succeed are actually much more likely to succeed again. So I think why you see serial entrepreneurs being so, it's very easy for them. I can, you know, I can testify this to myself. I think it took me four days to raise the round for my second company after I had had one successful exit because there's this kind of halo around those founders and, you know, VCs tend to think that they're much more likely to succeed again. And I think there's actually some justification in that. What are some of the biggest red flags when, when looking at companies? Um, what are some typical um, major issues that, that you see? Yeah, well, I think one is the margin that a lot of companies aren't somehow taking that seriously. Um, you know, you need, like as a VC, you basically need to see 80% gross margins or at least a path to getting there uh, in order for, because as an early stage VC like us again, and you know, you want the company to fund their growth with revenue. You don't want the company to have to fund their growth by tapping into more VCs that are going to come in later and invest and end up sitting on top of you in the preference deck. And so it's, and again, you know, it's from a founder's perspective, the same thing. You probably don't want to dilute any more than you absolutely have to. Um, and so that's a, that's a critical one right there. Um, another one that I think is risky is, um, having too many co-founders <laughs> yeah. when there's three co-founders almost inevitably you end up in i even have a formalized template that i call the co-founder charter that whenever there's more than one founder in a company i try to do uh, with the company founders just over the years and dozens and dozens of these companies is at some point the founders are going to disagree about something and if there's two of them and i think statistically actually two founder companies are the most likely to have a good outcome. But whenever you go three, four co-founders, uh, it's just much, much more likely that, you know, in inevitably the third person will leave or get fired and there's this, all this drama around it. So um, um, that's another thing to consider. Um, and then thirdly, I would say is um, the cap table. Um, there's a fairly straightforward way of building a cap table where you know, it's set up in a way that it's investable for an early stage VC and there's enough VCs are actually kind of, and this is something that uh, founders might actually find a little bit counterintuitive, but you want the founder or founders to have a lot of ownership in the company as much as possible, basically, because you know that over time they're likely to dilute. And as an early stage VC, you're really placing your bet on those people. And so um, you want them to stay in control as long as possible because what happens is that later you may end up with very large investors coming on board uh, waving around very large sums of money to try to get into the company and those whenever it goes into more of a private equity type of firm which is the investor 
the model tends to change from an early stage VC, which is basically completely hands off in the sense that they're not expecting the founder to take any of their advice seriously and do exactly what they please, and that's okay, to a later stage investor that's actually extremely focused on, basically they think they know better than the founder. And with some justification because they have probably done it multiple times. And, you know, they will even look at placing in uh, a CEO that's favorable to them, uh, replacing the founder. Or, you know, they have a certain idea of how the company should grow based on their networks and what they can tap into, which may be orthogonal to what the founder is thinking. But they know they have or they trust that they're going to get their return within the number of years that, and by the way, the larger rounds you take from larger funds, the shorter usually the time period gets um, in which they are expecting to make their money back. Because if you think about the internal rate of return, the IRR, that's really what often governs investing for, we talked about this massive 150x that the very early stage VC needs to make. Well, why is it so high versus the later stage guys that can make a much lower multiplier well it's because they're expecting that it's going to take well on average four and a half years but it can take 10 years or more and they have to be okay with that whereas you know a later stage investor may only want to see two years before they make their money back and the way irr works which is what oftentimes the lps really watch when they think about what what firm to invest in um, it's it's basically a function of the multiplier value and time so basically, it's okay to return a lower multiplier if that return comes much more quickly. And if the return time seems to be going further and further away, then you need to see a much higher multiplier in order to make that investment be on equal footing when you're deciding between the two. I want to return to something you spoke or actually mentioned earlier, just mentioned with, I think, a few sentences. It's the, how do these companies like Uber or mainly, I mean, you place the focus on maybe the founder specifically who repeatedly succeed in getting these big, uh, closing these big rounds of, of funding. How does that happen? What are the rules of the game that you talked about earlier? Well, let me say just one more time that actually every time a founder raises a big round of funding, I think it's a little bit of a failure. Yeah. And so, you know, there's celebration. And I think some of that celebration is justified, but ultimately you want to see that company grow without having to raise that money. Now, uh, okay, here's one thing. So how does, like, typically now um, a founder is not going to exit in one go. This is another thing. Um, and this is a part of the carrot that larger late-stage funds use in order to get into these deals at the point where they realize that there's an IRR opportunity that's open for them to make back their money with the kind of multiplier they need to show in the time frame that they need Right. Uh, and so they will come and, you know, they will say essentially, look, we're investing $60 million into your company at, I don't know, a 300 million or a 1 billion post money valuation. And 10 million of that we're giving to you as the founder. We're buying secondary from you at this point in time. So founders nowadays, it's a fairly routine, normal thing. This used to be considered an exception and something that generally people didn't like but nowadays it's considered pretty much okay and even expected that a founder is going to sell some of their shares to a late stage investor and essentially exit early right 
Um, and the justification there is that ideally that early stage founder has paid themselves the lowest salary of any employee in the company, right? And this also, by the way, tends to be different in Europe where founders tend to assume that they get paid a lot of money and they have credit cards and phones and cars and maybe even their house, I don't know, everything kind of on company credit. Whereas in Valley terms, the idea is that every single dime and cent um, that you raise from a venture fund, especially, is going to get ideally put into growth of the company. Um, and sometimes that growth means that you pay an engineer or a great marketing person or a great business person well, uh, but you probably aren't going to, you know, not pay yourself uh, very well <laughs> as a founder. That's sort of the assumption there. And you're certainly not going to be using the company credit card to, you know, buy expensive lunches and fly first class term, right? So there's still, I mean, there's obviously it's been talked about a lot and it's kind of a trope, but I do think there's a difference in just culturally what the expectation is in Europe versus the States. And oftentimes I've seen even Finnish founders who come into the, you know, the US and Valley uh, struggle with this because they're just expecting a different kind of norm and they don't understand that they're essentially breaking, breaking the tacit rules. So just a note. Now, um, again, so you've got this founder who's now lived in their tiny student flat for, you know, two and a half, three years. They've built this incredible company smartly, Vault, you know, I'm talking in Finnish terms here, but maybe, I don't know, the equivalent of a Zoom or a Slack or a, a Peloton, right? And so, um, and they have, uh, you know, frankly, VPs that are getting paid $250,000 a year or whatever, um, and yet they're still making 50. So in a situation like that, it seems reasonable to actually reward the founder early, for instance, allowing them to, I don't know, buy an apartment, maybe they've gotten a baby, et cetera. Like these things often happen, right? Because you want that founder to keep making wise decisions and actually feel less pressured to have to sell the company, for instance. If you wanna um, decide between an IPO and an acquisition, uh, then from an investor perspective, it makes sense to have a founder that's actually already gotten a bit of money because then they're more likely to swing for the big games, right? To really want to go all the way, take more risk, uh, maybe wait a few more years before they get the big exit uh, just in order to maximize the return for the investors. And so this is why this founder secondaries are nowadays a very typical thing. When okay, we we talked about you know how a company should look, what the what the ideal specs of, of the company should be, and also how they should uh, think about you know um, how the how the VC thinks. But uh, what is the perfect approach? Uh, how do you get the attention of VCs? Okay, the ideal case is that the VC comes to you, but for most companies, that's never going to be true. Right. Well, ideally, you build something that starts getting traction, and. From our perspective, just as a VC, so um, the moments that are, you know, there's basically, I have a friend um, who was, uh, you know, I think a major in, in Afghanistan in the U.S. Army on actually two different tours. And so I have, I homeschooled my kids and one time asked my friend, well, uh, his name is Kojo. It's like, Kojo, what's war like? He said, um, I was thinking like this would be interesting for my children to hear, like from a real soldier, like what is war really like? I said, well, it's basically 
long stretches of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. If you want to just like uh, be very succinct about what war is, right? And so I was like, huh, well, that's kind of like my job. <laughs> <laughs> so as a VC, you have these long stretches of utter boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror, which is when you discover that there's a company out there that fits your model that you might be able to invest in. And so most of the time VCs get pitched, right? And so as a founder, you're like, well, and I've been in this situation as a founder myself where I'm like, well, why is it that all these VCs just don't seem to warm up to my pitch? Because I think my company's great. And fundamentally, the fact that you are pitching at all means that you're probably not on the kind of growth path that the VC wants to see, right? Because when you are on that kind of growth path, you really don't need much VC. From an early stage VC's perspective, a company should be able to get profitable with, I don't know, maximum of $5 million of investment, right? And so that's so little that you can raise that in easily in two rounds. Let's say an angel slash pre-seed round of under $1 million and then a follow-on institutional seed round, which is on average about $3 million. So that'd be, let's say, $4 million total investments would get you to break even. So it's a pretty quick process for that. And so, but again, early, number one, early traction and growth. Like if you just focus on that, you're golden because the VCs will find you. And oftentimes the way the VCs find you is that you have a friend, another entrepreneur, maybe a more experienced entrepreneur who you have somehow had a great relationship I don't like the word mentoring. I don't think mentoring is real. The best founders don't have mentors. They just have other peers. Um, and so you have other founders that are more experienced perhaps, but that you treat as peers. And they are usually the ones or oftentimes the ones who then tip off their favorite VCs because it's a VC they may have worked with before or who they respect. And they're like, wow, uh, there's this guy Rahul who's built this incredible little thing called Superhuman that I think will you know, you should take a look at, you know. Um, so oftentimes the companies that I think are the best ones that we've heard about, you hear from other quality founders. Sometimes it's another VC or an angel. Um, but, you know, oftentimes also those investors then want to protect that, you know, they want to kind of keep it a secret, maybe a little bit. And and then, you know, if you're a great uh, brand, you may get invited into a syndicate, of course, you know, people always like to, and it's a good idea to co-invest with a bunch of people, but, you know, the syndicates tend to be very small. So um, that's how I would go about it. Focus on growth, get that early traction, and then, you know, be open, like, you know, share the, what you're building and exchange ideas with other very strong founders. And those founders are oftentimes the perfect way to get introduced to the best VCs. Um, rather than pitching VCs cold. So, you know, it doesn't hurt, but it's just a much, much, from a VC's perspective, less likely to be interesting for them. So you're you're already kind of starting from a, a less interesting starting point for them that you're going to have to get around. Okay, so a little bit, uh, you know, less focus on pitch decks and pitching competition training and a little bit more focus on the company itself. Or? Yeah, I mean, sadly, if you look at even Slush, I think the problem is that so much emphasis is being placed, placed on raising money, pitching, compiling pitch decks, telling a story, presenting. The I think right now, like the top performing company in our portfolio doesn't have a website, uh, 
you know, doesn't have a logo, um, has never been, doesn't, there's nothing about it on LinkedIn. It employs, I don't know, a few dozen people. None of, I don't think any of them, ha there's nothing about it online. And yet it's raised three rounds of financing now and it has a great valuation and products incredible, huge traction. So, and, you know, it has basically defied all of the ideas that, you know, reading about entrepreneurship or going to conferences like slush you if you're a young person and you just hear you think oh this is the way i should do it i should apply for y combinator right and i don't know it's just like but that's also when you see i call them warp pipes you know based on this guy shane snow's idea of uh you know you play super mario brothers and i think you know it's in his book um smart cuts but there's this uh you know, he tells the story of his roommate who basically essentially uh, played the world record uh, in Super Mario Brothers by playing through the game, uh, basically completing the entire game in the, in the shortest amount of time in the world. And I think the previous world record was like 36 minutes and he did it in, I don't know, five minutes and 30 seconds. And he was able to do this because he used warp pipes, which... I mean, uh, I, as a, I'm a, being a Super Mario generation guy, which I recognize you probably aren't, <laughs> uh, I always thought they were put in by the game designers so that people, testers who were playing the game could skip levels. So, you know, at the end of Super Mario Brothers, if you hop on this elevator at the end of level one, you can go up above the entire game field and then you can basically like run all the way to the end of the level like kind of where the scores are, you know, at where you're not supposed to be able to go, right? And then you get into this special thing where you can use warp pipes to skip levels. So um, using those, it's cheating, right? total cheating. Um, you're not supposed to do that. Or are you? And this is something, this happens uh, in VC too, right? So occasionally you get this founder that's using warp pipes to skip all the normal process and raises money like that. Um, and you're grateful that you were able to get into that deal. And that's what the VCs are looking for. And those founders have this kind of traction, right? And so when that happens is, you know, the VC hops on a plane if needed, um, you know, desperately tries to get an intro. So it completely turns around. Suddenly now you have VCs pitching the founder. Um, and then, you know, the idea is like, I remember I was, I was uh, spending a weekend with a friend before I came here to Helsinki in Big Sur. And he said, well, he was pitching this... Um, and recent a firm in, in the Valley that I'm sure you know well. And uh, he said, well, uh, I was like, how did that process go? And well, I was, it was really fast. Um, I was invited to the partner meeting and then I had the term sheet in my email before the Uber arrived to pick me up after the meeting. So it can be really fast uh, because you really want that deal. And as a VC, you need to, that's the moment of sheer terror for the VC. It's right when you suddenly realize, now I got to move. And so as a founder, you want to be the catalyst for that kind of moment in the VC's brain. And it doesn't come unless, number one, uh, you have this kind of idea that matches what we just talked about, right? Because the VC is doing, it's, it's you know, the gears are grinding in, in my brain when you pitch me and I'm thinking, is this going to return my fund 3x, right? And then the second thing is, is this founder obviously going to lead this company to a massive exit? And then thirdly, um, you know, where is the necessary 
financing going to come, the follow-on financing to get this there, right? Is it going to come from customer revenue or do I need to look at my friends, the bigger VCs, and figure out which ones of them are going to be, you know, a match in order to fund the, you know, like my friend Blake Scholl is building a supersonic jet. Boom, supersonic, right? Imagine, or I'm, you know, I, I invest in a company called ISAI uh, here in, in Helsinki that uh, makes radar satellites, right? So you can already tell that those companies are going to need more follow-on financing than Rahul, who's, who's building an email client, Superhuman, or, um, you know, Ulf Schwiekendijk, who's building, uh, you know, meditation productivity app called Centered. Um, these are SaaS businesses that, but again, so, you know, you can build both kinds of companies, but you're going to need to raise from people who are aligned with that. Like in the case of uh, ISAI, probably couldn't have invested that from YesVC, but True Ventures has a fund that is actually set up for something like that because the fund size is right. Um, you know, they have the capability to do the kind of follow-ons that are needed when you need to raise more money to launch satellites. And fundamentally, you know, you look at a business like that and you're like, oh, radar satellites, really, really, really hard technology to create and expensive so but generates data right so you're not just selling satellites you're going to have this satellite in the air that's going to be taking pictures through the clouds at nighttime providing completely reliable 24 7 coverage of any spot on the earth whereas any normal satellite that's using a camera 70% of the time can't image anything because there's clouds or it's dark right because the cameras just can't see through the clouds right it's just logic right so oh if you've got a satellite that can see through clouds that's probably pretty valuable and then if it's the only satellite that can see through clouds it's probably even more valuable right and so just from that perspective then from a vc you're like oh this is interesting because wow like this could be super valuable right and so and what's not to like because also it's really hard to copy um so it's justified to invest tens of millions of dollars into something like that because you realize that it's also building this moat that's making it increasingly difficult for others. And you realize that the value that you're getting out of it could still return that kind of multiplier because it could be so incredibly valuable, right? So, um, you know, you can just plug this into a spreadsheet. And I think it's fun also to, as a founder, I just recommend it. It's like, I run a cafe. So this is the other thing. It's like, I, you know, expose yourself to multiple things. It used to be like VCs always would say, you have to put all your eggs in one basket as a founder. You've, you know, we get to do a portfolio, but you as a founder, you have to focus on your own company, right? I don't think that's bullshit. You know, as a founder, you should be proliferating. You should be angel investing if you can. You should be exposing yourself to other founders. Start multiple companies. I think that's great. So, um, you know, and I run a cafe, <laughs> but it gives me incredible information advantage because now, like I just got pitched, uh, I don't know, like a time management solution for small businesses. I can just test it out with my employees and I can see what works and what doesn't. And I can actually evaluate these deals because frankly, I'm a customer. So that's another thing is like, if you are a founder and this is what I call these soda straw links, it's the best founders are always connecting in social networking terms to communities, right? Uh, like for instance, let's say cafe owners and website or you know online internet technology companies, right? So these typically don't really overlay, right? Not many cafe owners are also Silicon Valley tech company builders, right? But when as a VC like I am, now I can be my own customer, right? And so I can see 
from my personal experience what works and what doesn't. And so as a founder, I think that's why I'm also saying, especially as a young founder, you know, trying out and being wearing multiple hats at the same time is great because it gives you this ability to work as this sort of soda straw link that's, you know, basically connecting to networks that would otherwise not be connected. Thank you, Yuri, for this episode. This has been great. And also we're going we're gonna to make sure to link the uh, pitch deck in, in the description of this so you can, because I think that includes a lot of the tips uh, written in shorter form than this episode, but I think this episode fills in on a lot of the details. Uh, yeah. Thank you. And thank you. Yeah, very refreshing also and, and not maybe... Yeah, some, yes, some myths very uh, were, were destroyed. And I think it's good to have a fresh perspective on, on some things. And it's uh, that's why we wanted you here. All right, let's bust some myths. <laughs> Thanks, Stuart. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed your visit to that conversation as much as we did. Now, if you want to stay updated and keep in touch with us, please subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and then Facebook. You guessed it, Soak by Slush. Thank you, people, for listening. Bye-bye.